Tonight is Psalm 139, which is on page 628, if you're not familiar with your way around the Bible, and we'll be looking at just the first three verses. So that's Psalm 139, page 628. The psalm reads, for the director of music of David, a psalm, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. When we say we know someone, what does that mean? It seems as if we're quick to say that we know a lot about something, if we can rattle off lists of facts, but does that really mean we know it? Does the teenage guy really know that girl he likes because he knows her favorite candy and flowers? Might be helpful information, but I think we all know from experience that knowing things about someone is not the same as knowing them. In our time studying the word this evening, I want to highlight just two key points. The first of which is that God knows us intimately. The Lord has searched us, David says, and he knows us. In fact, if you were to translate this verse very literally, It could simply say, you have searched me and you know. He goes on to say that the Lord knows our routines, he knows our thoughts, he knows our location, and he knows our habits. If our eyes scan further in the psalm, we see that not only does God know the psalmist, but he's always near him. From the highest hill to the deepest valley, he cannot escape God's presence. He goes on to say that that's how it's always been, that even in the embryonic stages of life in the womb, God was there, knitting him together. While we might be able to know one another, we're not always as good at knowing ourselves. Introspection is a tricky business. This plays out all the time in everyday life. If you really want to know something about me, you'd probably do better asking one of my flatmates or close friends. Now, it's worth drawing some theological connections here. We worship a God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. He knows us because he made us. Humans have made some pretty remarkable things over our tenure on the earth. This building that we're sitting in tonight is a testimony to the architects and the craftsmen who harnessed the construction materials together to craft this building. And just as the architects and the construction workers know the intricacies of the things they build, God knows his creation. He knows us better than our closest friends know us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. It's a simple but profound truth, so important, in fact, that for a significant portion of church history, this psalm would be read weekly on Thursdays during Vesper services. This psalm was intentionally woven into the fabric of church life. Following these lines of thought, for some of you, there might be a bit of uneasiness building up. Perhaps some thoughts along these lines. If God knows me intimately, more than I or anyone else ever could, he knows what I'm really like. We can follow this and craft a bit of uh, what I like to call Santa Claus theology. Uh, You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, let me just say off the bat, this is truly terrible theology. Uh, Don't mishear me. We should certainly grieve and repent over our sins but it would be a tragic mistake to read this passage and see God as some sort of cosmic Facebook stalker. 
I'm highlighting this because when we study the passage together, we can clearly see that there's no sense in which the psalmist portrays God's intimate knowledge of him as a bad thing. It's actually the opposite. If you follow through the balance of the text, you'll see that the psalmist appears to say that God's continued involvement in his life is a really good thing. In fact, if we glance down to verse 16, we can see that this section culminates in David saying, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. And as you'll see in the footnote just below it, this could be translated, how amazing are your thoughts concerning me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Our first point then, is that we are known intimately by God. Second, we are loved profoundly by God. How is this love displayed? It's on display where David's confidence ultimately lies, in the Messiah who would be born as his descendant. I had the privilege of helping out at a funeral here this past week, and as we sung several hymns throughout the service, I was particularly struck by one of them. A Love That Will Not Let Me Go was written by a Scottish minister named George Matheson, and several events in his life drove him to highlight the profound truths that he evoked in this, which was his most famous hymn. He was born in 19th century Glasgow and studied classics at the university there before working on a theology degree at Edinburgh. As he studied, his already poor eyesight began to get worse. And doctors told him at a relatively young age that there was nothing more they can do and that he would soon be completely blind. Now Matheson was engaged and when his fiance learned that his vision would soon be gone. She told him she couldn't go through life married to a blind man, and she broke off their engagement. In the wake of losing his vision and the woman he loved, Matheson continued to study theology, and his sister committed to helping him. She learned Greek, Hebrew, and German to help him work through his academic material. Near his 40th birthday, his sister, who had been such a tremendous help to him, got married. So Matheson, who had already lost his sight and his fiance, was now going to lose the companionship of his closest family member. On the night before her wedding, racked with emotion, he wrote down the following words. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. In one of the darkest hours of his life, it was the love of God displayed in the cross of Christ that sustained George Matheson. I think many of us would say that it is in the middle of life's most difficult moments that our faith is truly galvanized, where we can say, as Dostoevsky did, my Hosanna is born in a furnace of doubt. As I close, I want to emphasize that it is at the cross of Christ that we can find the greatest display of the love of God. At the core of Christianity is our belief that the blood of God's Son ran down the side of an executioner's pole and was absorbed into the soil outside the city wall of Jerusalem. In this defining moment in human history, we can see the culmination of God's intimate knowledge of and profound love for sinners.
The cross is the pulpit of God's love. When we gather together at the Lord's table later tonight, we will celebrate and remember this profound truth that the God who knows us loves us. He loves us to the extent that he sent his one and only son to live and die as our representative, the righteous dying for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. This is the source of our hope in the middle of the turbulence of life. This is hope that transcends our concerns about post-Brexit Scotland, hope that's bigger than the chaos of the American election. This is hope for the young person unsure of their future after university, hope for the parent who longs for peace amid the chaos of young children, hope for those who are struggling with illness, and hope for the older saints here tonight for whom the funerals of friends is an all too frequent event. This was George Matheson's hope, and in Christ it's our hope this evening. Hope grounded in the reality that God knows us and loves us. The communion meal signifies all of this. As we share in it here in our local church, we participate together in a sacrament that's celebrated by the global church. And we can all proclaim together the ancient words, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again.